decades of poor research, a broken peer review system, false health and nutrition doctrines, inadequate regulation, and a culture dominated by powerful vested financial interests have combined to make the world's supermarkets into minefields of bad information and products that put our health, our lives, and our planet at risk. It's time to see beyond the two-for-one offers, the health aura products, and the shiny false promises on every shelf. It's time to let the real healing begin. I'm Melody Patterson Meta. I'm Melody and this Patterson Meta. Is reinventing and the this supermarket. Is reinventing the supermarket. Hi, today I'm really pleased to welcome academic and author Marion Nessel. Back in 2002, Marion Nessel authored a very important book called Food Politics, sharing its name with her popular food politics blog, which champions the role of real food in a healthy human diet. Marion's most recent book, Soda Politics, brings the food politics battle right to the door of the giant soft drink manufacturers and raises critical and disturbing points about the nature of marketing soft drinks, not just to an ever more obese public, but the targeting of soft drink marketing to children. As a result of her tireless activism, Marion Nessel has been described as one of the most influential foodies in America. This discussion focuses primarily on the issue of soft drinks, the sugar consumption they promote, and some of the marketing practices being used by the soft drink manufacturing industry. We'll be discussing some of the fundamental problems society encounters with large publicly listed companies whose required revenue objectives are clearly out of sync with our personal and community well-being. We're going to talk about the issue of marketing to children and, importantly, why soft drink manufacturers won't stop doing it anytime soon. We'll also touch on one of the major gaps from a public policy perspective and how policymakers don't seem to have learned much since the days of tobacco marketing. And we'll take a look at what's been happening with soft drink sales since the spotlight of public discourse turned its attention to sugary drinks. So let's get going. My recent discussion with Marion Nessel. Problems with the overconsumption of sugar-sweetened beverages, the soft drink industry playbook, how public policy has so far failed to connect the dots, and can we really stop soft drink brands from targeting children with their advertising, in this episode called Big Soda, Big Obesity. Marion Nessel, welcome. Glad to be here. Marion, we're in a, a particular time and place, I guess, in the history of our society where we're seeing tremendous uh, problems with uh, increases in diabetes, increases in obesity. Some of these diseases of civilization are really starting to uh, look alarming in terms of their uh, growth. And um, you've done some fascinating work with your uh, blog Food Politics over the years and your book Food Politics. But I'm particularly interested in the work you've done more recently with the book Soda Politics. And I really want to just sort of talk to you a little bit about what those 
implications are. What uh, what have you seen in terms of the uh, the corporate involvement in food and uh, how that's influencing some of these really giant public health issues that are facing us? Well, I wrote Food Politics in 2002 because I was going to a lot of meetings about childhood obesity and everybody at those meetings was talking about how they had to educate parents to feed their kids better. And at none of those meetings did anybody ever talk about the effects of food marketing on what children were eating or on parental choices or on anything having to do with the food supply. So I wrote the book in 2002. It's called Food Politics, uh, How the Food Industry Influences Nutrition and Health, to detail the ways in which food companies were influencing people's diets. I thought I was just describing the obvious, uh, but it seemed really obvious to me that the food industry, like any other industry, was in the business of trying to sell products. Its job isn't to, so, to be a social service agency, and they were selling products, no matter what those products were, in every way possible. And I could see a very clear link between the ways in which food companies were attempting to sell those products and the rise in prevalence of obesity among adults and children in the United States, it seems to me, seemed to me there was a very clear correlation. So that was food, what food politics was about. Um, Twelve years later, I got in. It was obvious again, obvious that uh, sugar-sweetened beverages were becoming the major topic of discussion. And I was meeting lots of people who said that the only change in their diets that they made at all was to stop drinking sugary beverages, and their weight just fell off, and they were back to some kind of normal weight. And it seemed to me that writing about sugar-sweetened beverages would be a really easy way to talk about how health advocates and food advocates have gotten the word out that it's healthier if you don't drink these things. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And and certainly those uh, sugar-sweetened beverages such as soda offer no nutritional value at all other than providing you with a huge hit of sugar or or uh, high fructose corn syrup. Yeah, I mean that was what makes them a really easy target. They are nutrition they have no nutritional value at all other than calories. Uh, and if you think of them as liquid candy as one of the advocacy groups in the states does, uh they had a report that came out in the late 1990s called Liquid Candy. And if you think about sugar-sweetened beverages as liquid candy, it's a very, very different way of thinking about them. Uh, you would never let children eat candy all day long, or at least most people wouldn't. Mm. And yet somehow the soda industry has convinced everyone that it's socially acceptable to allow children to drink sodas as a replacement for water. So these are huge social changes that have taken place. These are big multinational corporations that make these drinks. And no one had really done a scrutiny of their marketing practices related to trying to sell a product that isn't particularly healthy to children who don't need it. If there's one thing that Americans don't need, it's more calories. 
Right. And uh, I think that um, based on some of the work that I've seen of yours, you were very influenced by what you saw as the soda manufacturer's marketing response to Mayor Bloomberg's attempt to limit the size of the soda that was being sold in New York. Yes, I live in New York City, so I got to watch this uh, on a day-to-day basis. Uh, Mayor Bloomberg had this bright idea of limiting the sizes of sugary beverages sold in the in the city to 16 ounces or less. That's what, about 350 milliliters or something like that. And the um, I thought it was a really good idea, except I thought it was way too high. I thought the size should be limited to eight ounces. Um, and that would, be a, that would be a much better way to do it. Uh, 16 ounces, a 16 ounce soft drink contains about 48 grams of sugars. Um, or of high fructose corn syrup or whatever kind of sweetener they're using. And that is the upper limit uh, that is recommended by the World Health Organization for sugar intake. Sodas are the leading contributor of sugars to American diets. And if you want to cut down on your sugar, that's the best way to do it. So what kind of tactics were you seeing that bothered you so much that the corporations brought into play at that time? Well, there was it was a lot of it was framing that this was nanny state, this was the government going too far, this was the government getting involved in your personal uh, lifestyle choices, and this was completely outrageous. Um, this was going to put small business owners out of business. People were going to lose jobs. Um, and there were signs everywhere. There were planes flying overhead with banners. And there were young people out on the streets collecting signatures on petitions opposing the soda cap. Um, and they were, when asked who was paying them, they really didn't know. They listed an organization that sounded like it was citizens against unfair uh, government intervention or something like that. When it actually was, uh, they were actually paid by the American Beverage Association, which is a trade group for Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola, uh, and PepsiCo. And they were paid about $30 an hour. Uh, we asked how much they were being paid. That's uh, not bad for entry-level work. Um, and they were wearing T-shirts, don't let government tell you what to drink. Um, I mean, all of that kind of thing. And then when all of that failed, they took the city to court. And there was an elaborate court case, which they, the soda industry eventually won on technical grounds. Um, and it was um, kind of an object lesson. I don't think the city handled it very well. And I have a lot of criticisms of the way in which the idea was put forward and the lack of uh, consultation that had gone on around it and the lack of community organizing that went on around it. Um, but I thought it was a good idea and well worth trying. And in fact, it's so ironic because the soda industry now is putting an enormous amount of its advertising budget into promoting the seven and a half ounce cans of right. the, what they're called the mini cans of soft drinks because they're, they're enormously profitable. Of course. Uh, they can 
they can charge more for the smaller sizes than they do for the larger sizes and people are buying them and the one of the reasons why profits have not dropped off a cliff is because the they're making up for the shortfall with these the higher prices on the smaller cans and that plays very much into the long-term marketing strategy that the large soda manufacturers have had, which is to focus on caloric, caloric balance. And so those smaller cans, they're able to promote them as a smaller calorie boost. Uh, and so that um, it, it looks on the surface like they are doing exactly what society wants them to do. But what what have you seen in terms of the way they've influenced research in the background over the years that has um, enabled them to to ensure that the public health narrative actually supports what they're saying? Well, one of the issues that I discuss in soda politics is soda industry, particularly Coca-Cola and the American Beverage Association funding of research. And that research uh, has several goals. One is the, the obvious one is to cast doubt on any science that suggests that people would be healthier if they didn't drink sugary beverages. And I should say that there's an enormous amount of research that shows that a very, very strong correlation between regular consumption of sugar-sweetened sodas and obesity, type 2 diabetes, heart disease risk, poor diets and poor health in general. Um, and there's also research that shows that if you stop drinking sodas, you can correct some of the metabolic imbalances that have occurred. And so one of the things the soda industry wants to do is to undermine the credibility of that research. And they are able to do that by funding investigators who do studies that show that sodas have no effect on obesity, diabetes, or any of these other problems and that the database on which the research that does show effects is based is so flawed that you don't have to pay any attention to any studies that come out of it. Now, they don't actually have to prove anything. All they have to do is to cast doubt on the research. Right. And that is a fundamental goal of what is called the industry playbook based on the tobacco industry which had a very well-documented, overt, explicit campaign to cast doubt on the science, to cast doubt on scientists who were producing science that showed that cigarettes caused cancer and doing a whole lot of other things, um, blaming cigarettes on personal responsibility, not on the cigarettes, uh, and a lot of those playbook elements carry over into food. Right. The personal responsibility angle obviously is a really big one when it comes to marketing products like soda and products like tobacco because although they're happy to sell you enough enough sugar in a container that could you know, possibly put you into a coma <laughs> if you drank it all. They really are blaming you for purchasing that product in the first place. Right. I mean, we're just producing something that people like and 
if you we're not holding a gun up to your head forcing you to buy our product if you buy our product it's your you know it's uh, your decision um and that of course says nothing about the billions of dollars that the industry puts into marketing its products in ways that people aren't even aware they're being marketed to you know just have just having them ubiquitously available is one way what are your thoughts about the fact that publicly traded corporations simply are not aligned in terms of their objectives with the public well-being? Well, it's the public well-being isn't an issue in um, the in business. It's not. What's an issue in business, particularly in publicly tra- traded corporations, is growing the profits every ninety days and reporting those profits to Wall Street. Um, and these businesses are not social service agencies. They shouldn't be considered social service agencies, and they shouldn't be held to or, or nobody should be surprised if they don't behave like. Social service agencies. Uh, if you want to hold them accountable for public health, and we have to change in, in the United States, we have to change laws. Right. We, we have to have, regulate have, them. We have to regulate it. We have to change the law in a way that requires corporations to have some public benefit. But right now, we don't do that. Right. And also, of course, we're subsidizing as. Uh, as taxpayers, a lot of the ingredients that are going into uh, making these products, especially sugar, we subsidize a lot of the water that's being used because uh, they use huge amounts of water in the production. It's it's municipal water. (laughs) Yes. So they're heavily subsidized by the taxpayer in the first place. Yeah, well, the tax subsidy that bothers me the most is the one that allows um, corporations to deduct the cost of marketing as a business expense. So the marketing that the soda industry does to children, uh, particularly, that's a deductible expense. They don't pay taxes on it. So you're very you're very vocal about trying to prevent companies, particularly the soda manufacturers, from targeting children with their marketing. Oh, definitely, because uh, I think it actually actually marketing to children crosses an ethical line. Um, there's plenty of research that shows that children are incapable of telling the difference between something between something that is trying to educate them and something that is trying to sell them something. They're not able to just to make that kind of a distinction until they're eight or ten years old, and even then, there are lots of children who cannot make that distinction. That means that marketing to any under the age of, say, oh, let's call it 12, because that's the one that the soda industry is picked on, marketing to children under the age of 12 is unethical. And in fact, Coca-Cola and Pepsi and the other soda companies have said that they will not market to children under the age of 12 on television programs that are tar- that target children under the age of 12. And this sounds terrific, and they are, in fact, not doing that. They are not advertising on those programs. But the loopholes are enormous because children watch plenty of programs that are not aimed at children under the age of 12. As a marketer, I have to, as, and I've marketed, I've marketed in the soda, um, 
category in the past in years gone by and I can tell you it's so easy to get around that and particularly over the last 20 years that's become such a gray area because when you start talking about marketing to children that's a very vague term in in the marketing world we would narrow that down to targeting children but the whole angle of marketing and of targeting of various customer and consumer segments has changed from that demographic in general where because children are a demographic to to larger psychographic groups and ethnographic groups which means that a company can easily be targeting a psychographical ethnographic group who they describe as being 25 or 18 to 25 for instance but that definitely has huge or can have huge overreach as they apply that marketing strategy all the way back down to children eight and ten years old who aspire to be a part of that group. So it's a very tricky area to actually work out how to go in there and regulate that when in fact they are they are on the surface marketing to 18 to 25 year olds. But I can tell you that they absolutely know that children will be exposed to this. Well, more than that, um, I mean, I've talked to, I've been at meetings of food industry executives and have heard them say that they cannot stop marketing to children. It's simply not possible for them to do that and still maintain the kind of bottom line that is expected by their stockholders. Their primary responsibility is to meet the demands of stockholders. Their primary responsibility is not public health. It's to meet stockholders' demands for profits, and that's what they are required to do by United States law, and that's what they do. And I've heard them say over and over again, we can't stop marketing to children. I totally agree with this, Marion. I think that the SEC... is an enormous part of our market. We can't stop. And the SEC does make it illegal for public companies not to maximize their profitability and their revenue. So they are kind of between a rock and a hard place because SEC rules are themselves at odds when it comes to products marketing sugary, uh, sorry, companies marketing sugary products like soda. That's at odds with public health as well. Well, that you know, and then that makes it really difficult. We don't have um, a, a public policy about food and nutrition that is linked very firmly to health policy. Um, you know, and we have a healthcare system that doesn't work very well, and a lot of government agencies that are some of which see themselves as representing a large corporate interests because that's how our government gets paid. Um, that's how our leg- that's how our legislators and the people who represent us get into offices because corporations fund their television campaigns or whatever. It is interesting to look at uh, parallel sorts of situations, and I'm 
I know that tobacco is usually used, but I'm interested in the the parallel of alcohol, where there's a dosage that's deemed to be an acceptable dosage of alcohol. And in fact, an awful lot of public policy goes into communicating what that dosage is that you should be able that you should um, limit yourself to. Where are we seeing a move towards this sort of thinking in public policy to try and sort of shore up from the other side, uh, achieving informed consent with the people who are consuming soft drinks so that they understand what a, an unsafe dosage is? Well, I I think everyone understands that less is better and where the the world health organization and other major health organizations have said that sugar intake should be no more than 10% of calories uh, well what that comes down to is 50 grams a day or about 10 teaspoons 12 teaspoons of sugar a day that seems to me a generous amount yes. but it's so much less than mo- most people actually consume that it makes it will make a really really big difference and the easiest way to cut down on sugar is to stop drinking soft drinks right which is another reason why soft drinks are such a good topic and another reason why I wrote about them because they were just an easy example in public health terms they're low hanging fruit it's really easy to get people to stop drinking sodas and the book is subtitled Taking on Big Soda and Winning because sales of soda in the United States are way down. They're right, enormously which is great. lower than they were 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, and the word is out. Health advocates have gotten that word out so that more and more people understand that if they're going to drink sugary drinks, they have to do, the, do that in much smaller quantities. Right, and I think we're seeing the some of the big soda manufacturing companies, uh, particularly companies like Coca-Cola, moving into and diversifying into areas like milk now and water, uh, both of which have their own issues in terms of the externalized costs that the public is picking up for them, but the product itself is not as dangerous. Well, they have to sell something. And for Coca-Cola in particular, the loss of in sales of full sugar Coca-Cola has been devastating because Coca-Cola only produces drinks. That's what it does. And so its way of dealing with concerns about obesity has been to produce those mini cans that we already talked about and also to develop a whole line of other products that are lower in sugar. And they produce about 200 beverages, um, many of which are lower in sugar. They're buying up low sugar beverage companies. Um, They're doing everything they can to try to find a replacement for full sugar Coca-Cola. PepsiCo has an easier time of it because it also makes snack foods. And right. it can promote its snack, its snack foods and Pepsi-Cola is only a, um, a fraction. It's a big fraction, but it's a fraction of what the company makes, and it brings in lots of money in, in other ways. So these companies are trying to figure out how to navigate what has become a very different climate for consumption of their products. 
until obesity became a problem, they didn't have to deal with it at all. Um, they All they had to do was advertise their products as being fun and bringing happiness and being something pleasurable and not and not worry about anything about overconsumption once obesity became a problem the there that was a big game changer and it's been very very difficult for these companies to figure out how to handle it absolutely i think that um i can tell you that research that i've been involved with has looked at the way that we have started to change as a society our idea of what the term treat is and uh a soft drink or a soda used to be seen as a treat and a treat was an occasional thing. And I don't think any of us would argue that the occasional Coca-Cola in our lives is not going to kill us. But that I, that idea of treat has started to evolve into something different. Uh, I think people feel a lot um, a lot poorer. I think, think they feel their lives are a lot harder. And what we're seeing is that treat is less and less being seen as something occasional. It's being seen as something um, I can do daily in order to make myself feel better about my life. And I think that that's a part of what's changed the habits around the consumption, along with this very inexpensive product, which is, uh, you know, soda is incredibly inexpensive at the moment. Well, I would argue that the soda industry created that view deliberately. That was part of the strategy was to normalize soda consumption so that people weren't drinking one a week. They were drinking one or two a day. And I have a funny story about quantity because I was in Australia for a couple of months this year and I was interviewed by one of the Australian newspapers. And as a result of that, there was a big fuss about um, criticizing the consumption of sugary beverages and the uh, and the Coca-Cola company in Australia and New Zealand was forced to reveal who it funded, what organizations it was giving money to, and it caused a big fuss down there. And the head of Coca-Cola in Australia and New Zealand made a statement to the press saying, I don't understand what the fuss is about. One can a week isn't bad. There's nothing wrong with drinking one can a week. And <laughs> I thought that was absolutely astounding. Um, but of course, she's absolutely right. I would completely agree. There's nothing wrong with one can a week. It, But that's not what the industry is trying to get people to consume. The industry is trying to get people to consume an average of one a day. And since half the population never touches the stuff, it means that everybody else is drinking at least two cans a day. And those are probably 12 ounce cans. Right. And they're promoting lifelong loyalty to that kind of action as well, which makes it even harder in the longer term to pull people out of this habit that has been developed in many cases over decades to the detriment of their personal health. Well, that's the point of marketing to children. Exactly right. Um, what What are your thoughts? The points. That's right. What are your thoughts about what needs to be done next, and what actions can people take, uh, not just at the brand level but at the personal level in in your mind, to help improve this situation and and put us on a better track? 
Well, on a personal level, just don't drink these things and certainly don't have them in the house. And if you have children, you really don't want to have them in the house. Um, And you make sodas an occasional treat that makes perfect sense. For dealing with the food industry as a whole on a personal level, eat real food. Try not to buy so much processed food. Um, Do a personal boycott of the products of companies that are behaving in ways that you don't think are ethical or morally correct. Um, And then, you know, I tell people they have to get involved in politics because so much of the situation with food has to do with politics. And if we really want a food system that works to promote people's health, we have to change our political system to one in which our representatives are interested in public health. Uh, So I tell people to run for office. That's great advice. I have to say that the demand side, though, is a huge area. And as we see shifts in demand, and we certainly are, I think we're on a positive trajectory now. We are seeing large market shifts, as you described, with the loss of sales in the soda industry in the United States, uh, that the companies are very... uh, very attuned to that they're going to change they're changing rapidly they're changing as fast as they can and in fact as we demand on a personal level the market really does start to shift around us i think people forget how much power their their personal purchases have Yes, this is what I call it, vote with your vote, vote with your fork. Um, <laughs> and, you know, every purchase that you make is a decision about supporting the kind of food system that you want. Uh, but then you have to vote with your vote, too. And that means getting involved in political activity, probably easier at the local level than it is at the national level these days. Yes. Uh, Marion, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to have this discussion. I'm a very big fan of your blog um, and links will be on the page uh, for everything that you've um, got out there, your books and your blog. Um, and I just have to say that uh, it's it's wonderful to see some of the food policy discussion that you're getting out there into the mainstream because we desperately need it. Oh, thanks so much. I'm Melody Patterson Meta. I'm Melody Patterson Meta. Is reinventing the supermarket. Is reinventing the supermarket.